This is Comic Geek Speak, episode 1582. Previews! Uniting the world's mightiest heroes! This is... I'm Adam Murdo. And I'm Chris Epperly. All right, now that I've blown your eardrums off, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, readout on the computer here, and I think the, uh, <laughs> this, the sound for the, the intro music was spiking a little bit. We're just so excited to have it back again uh, that uh, we couldn't help myself, but uh, just turned it up to 11. Yeah. And uh, thanks again to Kyle of uh, Kirby Crackle and to Ian Levenstein for uh, interceding for us and getting that music back to us so that we can uh, play it at the, at the top of our shows as we've become accustomed to doing. Murd, I love when you get uninhibited. <laughs> uh, yes, when I start babbling, you mean. All <laughs> uh, right. Well, here we are again, though. It's that time of the month, and we're getting it to you a little early here uh, for December of 2015. Uh, our previews episode, where we go through that uh, big, beautiful book that uh, shows up in comic shops uh, at the beginning of each month from uh, Diamond Entertainment to show you what uh, you can expect uh, to be hitting comic shelves and toy store shelves in uh, a couple of months' time. It's always a lot of fun for us. I know a lot of you folks listening uh, sort of, uh, I won't say depend, but uh, um, anticipate uh, our help in uh, you know, guiding you in what you're going to be reading a couple of months from now. And uh, we, it's a duty we take seriously, and we're pleased to be able to bring it to you a little bit on the early side this month. All right. And as always, this episode of Previews, like all Previews episodes of Comic Geek Speak, is brought to you by DCB Service, the Discount Comic Book Service, who can be found at their website, dcbservice.com, a place to go for all of your uh, ordering of comic books and related paraphernalia by, uh, by mail. Um, they always have uh, special deals, uh, you know, special discounts uh, from... You know, 20, 35, 40, or more percent off on uh, various things. Uh, they usually have special deals available on collections, trade paperbacks, and hardcovers from the big two publishers, Marvel and DC, plus other uh, special highlight deals of uh, 40 or more percent off, for, usually for special, uh, well, first issues, milestone issues, things that they want to bring your attention to. And we try to... Um, emphasize those uh, special discounts throughout the course of an episode, but uh, since we are getting underway early with this this month, getting it to you within a week of the beginning of the month, um, we're uh, not going to be able to uh, share those with you because dcbservice.com has not been updated for the new month yet. But uh, rest assured that those discounts will exist, even if we are unsure as to their precise nature. Uh, it will probably... They, they've been offering 50% off uh, DC and Marvel hardcovers and trade paperbacks for the last several months in a row. Um, and they usually do have uh, bundles, too, uh, where you can offer... They offer you the chance to order all of a certain specified set of titles, like maybe all new titles from a given publisher uh, in a given month. They will offer you the chance to buy all of them in a package uh, at a uh, deeper-than-average discount for the whole thing. Like, uh, 
Last month they had uh, Marvel relaunch titles at 50% off. Um, $125 for X number of uh, relaunch number ones. So those discounts are available to be had for the asking at dcbservice.com. It's a great friend of our program and a great friend to uh, LCS-less comic fans everywhere. ecbservice.com. Adam, how the hell are you, especially as we're entering your busy season? (laughs) Chris, I'm exhausted but happy. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, much as you look forward to these uh, little gab sessions about comics as a kind of therapy after a long, hard day slaving over educating our youth, I'll no less look forward to it after a long, hard day of uh, slug... uh, uh, lugging artificial Christmas trees around. Artificial Christmas trees. All mm-hmm. right. Well, as I mentioned to you off the air, I'm going to make every effort this season to. I've never actually been to Murdo's Christmas Barn. So <gasps> I know, I know. I've been to the satellite store down the shore, but never the hub. So I'm looking forward to hoping to get that done this month. Prepare to be overwhelmed, Chris. That's what I'm counting on, my friend. What you saw in Stone Harbor is but a fraction. <laughs> of the holiday excess that awaits you. Well, I want to get some ornaments. All right. So. Well, we have those. <laughs> All righty. Let's uh, plunge in here, shall we, brother? All right. We shall. We shall. Beginning, as usual, at the Dark Horse uh, section of the catalog. And this is the uh, December catalog uh, covering things expected to be in shops uh, in February of 2016 or afterward. Uh, on page 30, if you're a Tomb Raider fan, they're, they're I guess, relaunching that book, Tomb Raider number one. Uh, Mariko Tamaki and, uh, as the writer, Philip, forgive me, Sevi, if that's mispronounced, is the artist. I'm never been much of a Tomb Raider fan, but if you are, the art looks compelling, so that may be something for you. Yeah, that's uh, Dark Horse's big uh, headline launch for this month. Yeah. They're leading with it. Truthfully, I don't have very much uh, marked in the Dark Horse section this month, Chris. Um, it's true of most of the catalog. I mean, I, I think I said last week that January was – last month that January was going to be kind of a lean month for me as far as buying comics goes. February is going to be even leaner. We're really uh, tightening our belts here for the long, cold winter. Well, yeah, as we mentioned, because uh, re- we both have retail experience, the, the, the months of January and February, frankly, are dreaded by retailers of any stripe. Um, in most cases, and uh, you just got to kind of fortify, hunker down, and just you know keep your cost down, and just hope to get through it because uh, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty unforgiving. So, and, and I th- I agree that the previews I think reflects that, but you know, never fear, there is some stuff we're going to be talking about. But I agree, not much run- jumps out in Dark Horse for me as well. Um, a couple of things I'll mention just for people who are maybe fans of these these properties on page thirty six. Aliens 30th Anniversary, the original comic series hardcover. So this is the 1988 Aliens art by Mark A. Nelson, script by Mark uh, Verhaden. So they're releasing that in – re-releasing that in a, in a hardcover. On page 37, Hellboy in Mexico trade paperback, uh, which collects various Hellboy stories from his journeys across Mexico in the 1950s, which that looks a lot of, like a lot of fun. Uh, honestly, I'm kind of done with Dark Horse, unless you have something else you want to jump in on there. Yeah, the only thing I'm planning to purchase from Dark Horse this month is the fifth issue of the Steam Man miniseries. 
Um, although, uh, I did pick up at uh, my LCS, at know, Golden Eagle, this week, uh, the first issue of uh, the Mystery Girl series, uh, written by Paul Tobin with art by Alberto Albuquerque. Um, the third issue of that appears on page 51. It's about a young lady who has uh, the uh, uh, a kind of second sight. It's a power of... Uh, Selective omniscience, call it. Uh, it's a bit of an oxymoron, I know. But she has the ability to know the answer to almost any question put to her. But among the very few pieces of information she cannot obtain is uh, how she comes to have this power in the first place. And uh, I guess it's uh, to, to go in search of uh, the, the answer to this riddle that she uh, launches on kind of a globe-trotting adventure. I can see that in the third issue uh, she's uh, hunting down Siberian mammoths. And uh, there's some kind of wolf creature on her trail, too. <laughs> um, yeah, I picked up the first issue, flipped through it, and was charmed enough that I decided to pick it up. I mean, this is the kind of series and the kind of character that could grow obnoxious very quickly if uh, allowed to cop an attitude about what uh, she is able to do. Uh, but uh, Paul Tobin is writing her as a, 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 a likable character, and that uh, meant everything to the success of this series as far as I'm concerned. So I decided to pick it up, and I'll probably uh, give uh, future issues a try, too. It, it, it kind of looks promising. I'm going to jump ahead, actually. One thing I, I did forget to mention, actually, is on page 57. Eerie Comics, Volume 1, Close Encounters uh, of the Spooky Kind Trade Paperback. Um, now, they've been reprinting eerie and uh, creepy I- issues. And these are, the, of course, the legendary uh, Warren uh, right. Black and White Monster magazines uh, for years in hardcover. But now they're doing a soft cover at a more affordable 1999. Um Collects Erie Comics 1 through 8. Uh, so that may be something worth checking out. Uh, it has art by Kelly Jones, Jonathan Case, David Lapham, Mike Allred. So that's interesting, hmm. to say the least. Now you're a fan of the uh, EC and Warren uh, horror material? Of course. Um, and uh, actually, on page 61, just I want to point out because I mentioned this before, I have yet to read Lone Wolf and Cub. And uh, they're releasing the final omnibus, volume twelve. So this is now I can c- pick up the whole thing, and maybe I'll make this one of my summer reading projects because mm. I've heard nothing but praise for the series in, in all the years I've been reading comics. I've yet to pick it up. So, and considering I'm such a student of Japanese history and culture, and you know, I've also married into it to some degree, that uh-huh. this is definitely something I should read. Yeah, sure. And now uh, it's uh, the complete series is collected in these uh, large uh, yet affordable uh, compendia. All right. Should we move on to DC, sir? All right. Let's let's go ahead and do that. All right. All right. And staring us in the face on page sixty-six is an image of the Joker, and it uh, from uh, apparently a tie-in to the uh, current uh, DK three, uh, well, the third installment of uh, what has become a trilogy of. Uh, the Dark Knight Returns miniseries uh, from, to one degree or another, Frank Miller. And it would appear that this uh, Dark Knight Returns, The Last Crusade one-shot, um, is uh, written, well, co-written by Frank Miller and Brian Azzarello with art by John Romita Jr. and Bill Sienkiewicz. Wow. Quite a team there. It seems to be a kind of a prequel to the original Dark Knight Returns. Well, it says before the Dark Knight Return, the Joker, Poison Ivy, Selina Kyle, and the Last Robin. So I guess they're. I guess it seems so. Um, now I, I, I won't comment it in any length here, but I have read the first issue of, of Dark Knight Volume Three. Have you murdered or no? I'm kind of staying away from it, Chris. Okay, then we won't we won't address it at this yeah. time. The reports that uh, I've heard have been mixed, but uh, tending towards the negative. 
Well, I'll comment on it on a future episode, but um, okay. I'll uh, considering the creative team on this, I'll probably give this a try. Um, the next page, another uh, creative icon from the past, Neil Adams, writing and drawing Superman: The Coming of the Supermen, number one. From legendary writer artist Neil Adams comes a threat so epic it will take more than one Man of Steel to handle it in this new six issue miniseries. Hmm. So it involves Dark Horse, the city of Kandor, um, and uh, three heroes. Yeah, it's a, kind of a twist on the old Superman uh, rescue squad concept. Yeah. It looks like they are actually going to emerge from the city of Kandor at mm-hmm. full size. Right. And with all the uh, powers uh, pertaining yep. to Kryptonians in an earthly yellow sun environment. So, yeah. Now, I must admit, I, I've always revered Neil Adams' work. I did not enjoy Batman Odyssey, the... Uh, I, I couldn't get through it, frankly. Uh, the, the, this epic miniseries he did some time ago, so I, I don't know if I'm going to give this a try or not. But uh, it's Neil Adams, so that's that's there's something to be said for that, just in the name and the artwork. But you have any thoughts on that, Murd, or no? Uh, my thought is that the name of Neil Adams doesn't mean what it once did. Um, I mean, I, I hear things about uh, how the man is, um, well, he's got an ego a mile wide, and he's also slowly losing his mind. So, yeah, I don't know if uh, his uh, skill as an artist has uh, deteriorated any, but, yeah, just, uh, I don't exactly start salivating whenever I hear the name of Neil Adams these days. But this is a cool concept, I must grant. Anything that oh, yeah. uh, delves back into the culture of candor usually at least uh, you know, pricks up my ears a little bit. I... I, I... On the strength of the concept and my love of the artist, I, I, might, I might give the first issue a try. One thing I know I'm going to give a try is on page 68. Wonder Woman Earth One Volume One Hardcover, an OGN. Now, written by Grant Morrison, mm-hmm. art by Yannick P- Paquette. I mean, wow. <laughs> and I love this description. Encompassing the vision of her original creator, William Moulton Marston. Morrison presents a Diana who yearns to break free from her mother and the utopian society on Paradise Island to learn about the forbidden outside world. In. <laughs> Immediately. I think you had me at Morrison, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, absolutely. But I love how reverent, even in a bizarre way, Morrison can be with the history of characters he's dealing with. So I'm really looking forward to reading this. Um and of course, the cover features a bondage scene. Well, it's, if it's if it's inspired by William Moulton Mar- Marston, yeah, exactly, it should. exactly. <laughs> yep, I will. I've, I've been waiting for uh, Morrison's take on Wonder Woman for years, and uh, my curiosity is uh, whetted a bit by uh, the fact that he admitted around the time of the release of uh, Final Crisis several years ago that uh, Wonder Woman was a character he'd struggled with writing. Uh, it certainly didn't seem that way, having read his JLA run. Didn't seem to have any trouble with her there, but uh, he. It just didn't seem to get a good handle on her and yeah. what the core concept was and what was she a pacifist or a warrior or something, some paradoxical combination of the two. Uh, but here he's able to go back to the you know, sort of uh, off uh, gonzo sexual social philosophy of <laughs> William Moulton Marston and uh, um, sort of recombine that with uh, other bits and pieces of Wonder Woman history and uh, of, of other decades and uh, come up with something completely new and um, slightly crazy and uh, very enjoyable, I'm sure. Uh, but as usual, I'm going to wait for the uh, soft cover on this, as I've done for every other Earth One graphic novel DC has done so far. 
Well, my friend, you're also welcome to borrow my hardcover after I read it. All right. Maybe I'll take you up on that, Chris. Of course, my friend. Um, honestly, I have nothing to say till page 105, so if you have anything in between, please sing out. All right. Well, let's see. On page 69, we've got a one-shot tie-in to uh, Jeff Johns' ongoing Dark Side War story from his Justice League series. So there's an additional 40-page 399 issue to read there, artwork by uh, Oscar Jimenez. Appears to give us some additional details on one of the supporting players, uh, Grail, daughter of Darkseid. Looks like uh, Johns is trying to beat out the trial of the Flash here. Holy mackerel. This is... <laughs> does seem to be going on for a while, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I, I mean I can't comment because I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to reading I have the first several issues still on my growing pile of comics, which of course is a molehill compared to your uh, you know, civilization in your, in your apartment. But, <laughs> yes, you indeed. Know. I might say a necropolis because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it seems to be standing between me and my life. Uh, well… <laughs> That was grim. <laughs> yes, I know. It's <laughs> brighten up, Adam. It's Christmas. Indeed. Uh, let's see. Page seventy-nine. Uh, Justice League three thousand one number nine. We're going to be introduced to the three thousand one version of Eclipso. So I'm definitely there for that. Of course. Um. Yes. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. Yeah. Again, I, a lot of these are just ongoing books that we've commented on in the past. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to uh, – actually, go ahead and talk about what you were going to talk about, Chris, because I don't think I sure. have anything before then either. Okay, so on page 105, uh, I'm a big fan of Tim Seeley and, and our friend Tom King's work on Grayson, and here Tim Seeley's uh, writing on his own Batman Arkham Knights. I'm assuming it's based on the video game, Batgirl Harley Quinn number one, art by Matthew Clark, Wade Von Grubbiger, and Sean Parsons, cover Matthew Clark. Just, you know – Two great characters in, in, in some sort of team up. This new one shot featuring the origin of Bat. I'm sorry, the origin of Batgirl and an early adventure of Harley Quinn. So, I think Tim Seeley is a very strong writer, so that might be very engaging. Probably worth checking out. Um, yeah, this is. I mean, on page 110, DC continues its coloring book theme, so you can color Batman Hush Volume One. In heavy stock, suitable for coloring. On heavy stock, and uh, this one's even cooler. Yes, indeed. Batman Adventures: Mad Love, which is one of the what, probably. I mean, that Mad Love is one of the iconic Batman stories of all time. I would say. I mean, I'm hard pressed to disagree. Yeah. Um, you know, the introduction of the animated series version of Harley Quinn in comic form, uh, and again on heavy stock for coloring. Uh, included besides Mad Love, it includes Batman Adventures Annual One and Batman Adventures Holiday Special One. The entire, I should comment that the entire Batman uh, Adventures line they did, and they changed the title a couple, but it was all great. I mean, in that animated style. Uh, and I, when I, I sell kids comics in my store, old old back issues for a dollar a piece, uh, and, and I always try to find these books wherever I mean wherever I can because people still really enjoy reading them, both kids and adults. I'm moving on into trades unless you have any other floppies you want to discuss. Uh, I did find one. Um, Go page for it. 103, Green Lantern number 49. Uh, we see a new 52 version of the classic Green Lantern opponent, Sonar. And he looks pretty cool. Huh. Uh, and that's it. So, trades. All right. <laughs> um, I'm looking at uh, this is on page 119. This is very exciting and long overdue. Gotham Central Omnibus hardcover. 
Uh, $99.99. Just say it's $100, please. Uh, on sale May 4th. It collects the 40-issue run of Gotham Central by Ed Brubaker and Greg Rucka. Your heart should be pounding already. Hmm. And art by the great Michael Lark. I cannot emphasize enough for me, this is one of the strongest DC titles of the past – You know, this came out in the previous decade. Uh, it's, it's pretty much flawless. Yeah, um, the very beginning of 2003, I think, because I'm almost read up to that point. <laughs> Fair enough, sir. Um, th- this is – again, if you haven't read the story it, – it's also available now in four separate trades, the whole series. But it chronicles the experience of Gotham City major crime unit detectives having to try to uphold the law and investigate cases in a city as bizarre as Gotham City. And Batman is there, but he's often kind of in the background because everything's from the perspective of the detectives. And of course, Renee Montoya plays a major role uh, in this in this story. Uh, you also see some, some of Batman's rogues uh, gallery. One of the greatest Joker stories I've ever read uh, is in Gotham Central, uh, where the Joker just decides to kind of play sniper and wreak havoc in the city. Uh, this this is highest recommendation. Uh, and again, you have two of the greatest writers in the medium working together for Pete's sake, Brubaker and Rucka. Uh, I, I can't recommend this enough. Well, I've, I kind of didn't buy it at the time, Chris, but uh, my curiosity has since then been piqued because uh, the comics I'm reading now were comics DC was publishing at that time with little uh, uh, previews, preview pages inserted in the middle at the spine of the comic of the upcoming Gotham series between uh, Brubaker and Lark. And it, it, it looks – well, it wouldn't have interested me then, but it does now. And uh, this is just kind of made for someone like me who totally missed the boat the first time. I can get the entire series in one package. And I, I'm, I, I would imagine that DCB service will have this probably at probably half off or close to it would be my guess. Oh, yes. So um, th- this is – if you're a fan of crime comics or just crime fiction, if you love the Batman universe, Gotham City, and you haven't read this – Trust me, especially if it's at a good discount, it is well worth the money. If you've watched the, um, Gotham, the Gotham TV show and wished that it were better than it is, this is exactly what uh, a lot of us have been hoping that Gotham TV series would turn out to be. Indeed. So. All right, I'm jumping ahead to page 121. Superman the Golden Age, Volume 1. Now, the reprinting here, Action Comics 1 through 12, Superman 1 through 4, and Words Filler Comics number 1. What I find interesting about this is that I guess they're, st- they're no longer doing the Superman Chronicles series, um, and I haven't seen one of those in the previews in quite some time where they were printing all the Golden Age Superman stories in sequence when they were actually published. Right. So it looks like they're kind of just starting over here with – now they're just calling it the Golden Age Volume 1. Uh, uh, maybe they thought the Superman Chronicles didn't uh, get the idea across thoroughly enough. Perhaps, but if you're a fan of DC history or Superman, I mean, this is essential reading. And again, this, what's interesting about this is that this is very much the original Siegel and Schuster vision of Superman as sort of like working class hero, right? Like champion of the proletariat. Uh, wouldn't you say, Murd? Like this is a you know man of the people type Superman. Oh, you yes, know? yes. He's been described as a super FDR, and uh, yeah. he's he's a vigilante. The police. He's not the establishmentarian figure that he eventually evolved into. At first, the police are actually after him. He's very much operating outside of the law in the cause of truth and justice, whether the law likes it or not. And he he, he quickly you know makes his peace with the authorities after that. But uh, the, the, these early stories, uh, th- this is what Morrison was grasping. Grant Morrison was grasping at with his uh, relaunch of the character. In the New 52 era. 
So yes, if right. you're a fan of Superman, this is perhaps a version of Superman uh, uh, you you haven't seen before. And Murr, this is a perfect uh, vehicle for a question. I've always mean to ask you because in terms of continuity, who is the Golden Age Superman? Because the Superman who first appears here, I've always found this this, this little concept fascinating. I shouldn't say little, but this this concept fascinating. When we talk about the Earth Two Superman, is that supposed to be this Superman? I think it was intended by the people who. I think it was actually Denny O'Neill who wrote the story that uh, brought about a Earth well, an Earth Two Superman because yeah. the, the Earth Two concept had been around for a couple of years, but. Uh, uh, yes, all of the Golden Age stories were supposedly, you know, putatively grafted onto this uh, newly created Earth Two Superman character. So he's supposed to be a, a stand-in, like a walking symbol for the idea of the Golden Age Superman. But there are those who argue uh, that uh, the Golden Age Superman should be thought of as a as a, a completely different character who simply, you know, ceased to exist after a certain number of years passed and evolved into something else. So there are two schools of thought on that subject. That's what I thought. I, I just find that fascinating. <laughs> uh, same page, Wonder Woman, War of the Gods. This is uh, Perez's classic Wonder Woman work from the early 80s. Collects um, the War of the Gods miniseries 1 to 4 and Wonder Woman 58 to 62. Yep, this was right around 1990 or 91. I think just shortly before I just started reading comics, actually. Um, our friend Peter Rios, uh, one of the biggest George Perez fans you're going to find, has uh, lovingly, affectionately characterized this series as a mess. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he's kind of right, uh, but it's still it, – it's a good-looking mess. It's, it's kind of fun to read. It, uh, Pariah is in there, so you know I was excited about that. I, I haven't read all the tie-ins. I have read the uh, – core like four issue miniseries which is re- reprinted in this trade and it's just a, this big sloppy stew of different uh, mythological characters and uh, all the different characters in the DC universe who somehow get their powers from some kind of god all uh, are get their chance to trot across the stage at some point captain marvel and black adam are both featured um so yeah it's it, it it's fun but it is uh, narrative chaos <laughs> Speaking of chaos, if there's anybody who should come on a world's funnest on the same page, it's you, Murd. Proceed. Oh, thank you very much, Chris. Yeah, this yes. – uh, we actually well, did a, a, a CTS Footnotes episode about the uh, one-shot world's funnest comics uh, by Evan Dorkin and a variety of artist friends. Uh, Pants and I did that as like a uh, April Fool's project a couple of years ago. Um, and, I, and ladies and gentlemen, that, that episode, I just listened to it in the, in the past year. It is a hoot and a half. <laughs> so. hey, do I hear a hoot and three quarters? You got it, buddy. <laughs> Sold, American. <laughs> so, yes, it, it collects that story, which is just this big, massive brawl between um, Mr. Mixius Pitlick and Batmite, uh, the two um, nigh-omnipotent, uh, impish, extra-dimensional uh, opponents of Superman and Batman, respectively, as they just have a knockdown dragout across as many different uh, DC Comics realities as Dorkin felt like squeezing into one comic book, and each reality is illustrated by a different uh, artist. So there's a ton of great talent working on that one one-shot. Plus, as if that weren't enough, this trade paper Back also gives us a bunch of other appearances uh, by these two characters, um, uh, pre-crisis and post-crisis from the looks of it, because I see Detective Comics number 267, definitely pre-crisis, is included in there. Um, so, yeah, it's a bunch of uh, – it, it, it's imptastic. It's <laughs> – yeah, it's uh, – and when is it uh, – it's due to be released uh, March 30th, just before April Fool's Day 2016. How is Perfect. that for timing? That's great. Perfect. 
And before we turn the page, let me jump back quick to page 120, where we see uh, the first volume of a series of trades uh, entitled Superman and the Justice League. This is Dan Jurgens's uh, run on that title. Um, uh, he wrote and drew the Justice League for a time when Superman became a member of, for the first time officially in post-crisis history. And uh, so this also leads us up to about the time when the death of Superman's story happened. So... Um, yeah, I haven't read much of that, uh, but I think Shane might appreciate it if we uh, – I think he enjoyed that particular run, not as much as he did the Bwahaha stuff. But uh, for his sake, I'm bringing that up. Dan Jurgens on the uh, early 90s Justice League. Shane, we love you, brother. We sure do. Now, I have nothing to say about Vertigo unless you do, Murd. Um, well, let's see. Their um, introduction this uh, like uh, the the big new series that they're doing this month is called "The Dark and Bloody" on page one twenty three, and it seems to involve uh, Kentucky moonshiners, um, Iraq War veterans, and uh, black magic of some kind. So, hmm, interesting heady mix. Um, then on page 124, uh, Astro City number 32. This is a callback to the classic uh, Tarnished Angel arc. Oh, uh, look at that Robert Mitchum likeness. I love that it, character. It totally oh. is, yeah. yeah. So it's about a down-on-his-luck old supervillain uh, who has uh, metal skin. He was called the Steeljacketed Man, eventually shortened it to Steeljack. And uh, it was uh, this very kind of hard-boiled uh, crime noir sort of story. It was uh, a tremendous story, tremendous. Right. It went on for like uh, f- uh, five issues, uh, I I don't remember the exact length, but it was uh, something of an epic, and it was this guy finding his way through the seamy underbelly of uh, super crime in uh, in Astro City and uh, uncovering an, a conspiracy involving a former member of the Honor Guard, which is Astro City's version of the Avengers, the Justice League, you know, the big iconic A-list super team. And uh, he came out the other end of it uh, having um, – I'll turn over a new leaf somewhat, and uh, so this story, uh, picking up uh, in where that story left off, Astro City number 32, we see what he's been doing since then. He's apparently set up shop as a PI, and uh, trouble on two legs comes through his door, as we see on the front, on the cover there. So that's, uh, that's a story I'm looking forward to. Absolutely. Um, but uh, those are all the marks I, uh, I, I've made here. Uh, oh, um, there is... Uh, on page 130, uh, Jeff Lemire's Trillium, which is a science fiction uh, time travel story uh, told in flipbook format originally. Uh, apparently, DC is reprinting the first issue uh, for $1. So there is that. Something, we did that as an off-the-rack selection uh, some time ago. Indeed. Uh, partially, uh, also a tribute to Shane, on page 136, DC Collectibles, beautiful Renderings of the Carmen Infantino style Batman and Robin black and white statues. Uh, these are – if you're a fan of the black and white uh, statue line, I think it's one of the strongest statue lines DC has produced. Uh, here they're in the style of Carmen Infantino. Right, the from new the, look Batman. Yep, from the, the Silver Age. You're right, the new look, the, 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 the chest sigil. Uh, these are beautiful statues. Uh, $80 a piece on sale in June. So hmm. – and I'm loving the design of the uh, DC Bombshells Killer Frost statue on page 138. Oh, yes. Looks like she skied right out of an episode of the Adam West Batman series. <laughs> IDW? All right. Let's do it. Okay. I have to go immediately to page 144. All right. Um, the Empire Strikes Back Artist Edition. Pants? <laughs> this one's for you, baby. Look at this. Al Williamson artwork. Wow. Again, if you're unfamiliar with the Artist Edition, they, they reproduce in full-scale size 
uh, scans of original artwork from various characters uh, and titles throughout the history of the com- American comic book medium. Uh, for me, Al Williamson is one of the greatest Star Wars illustrators of all time. He definitely brought his Flash Gordon sensibility to the book. I still think he, he, drew, he, drew, he drew one of the finest Darth Vader's you're ever going to see, besides the current wonderful Darth Vader artist, Salvador La Roca. Um, and here they're running some of his artwork from The Empire Strikes Back, which when Marvel did the adaptation, they, they put it right into the actual Marvel series. So it was actually sequence, in, in sequence for a period of months in the, the Marvel Star Wars title. Um, and this says it collects all of Williamson's Empire work, as well as selected pages from Return of the Jedi and other Star Wars pages. Incredible. That's – Wow. And all Speak. of this wrapping its way around scripts by the late, great Archie Goodwin. Yes, I'm, and I can't recommend enough uh, these these uh, stories. In fact, I can tell people a little preview. In a few weeks, we will be recording a new spotlight that will be addressing Star Wars in the Marvel era in celebration of the oncoming film. So... Stay tuned for that, ladies and gentlemen, and other Star Wars topics as well. Cue the Fox fanfare. <laughs> what else do you have for IDW, my friend? Uh, well, I'm going to step back quick here. Um, Go ahead. You know, for the sake of the you know, video game generation, on page 142, we've got a, an inner property crossover, Street Fighter X G.I. Joe. <laughs> I guess that's supposed to be a multiplication symbol. You know, like They can't just use a slash or a solidus. It's got to be Street Fighter times G.I. Joe. It's a product of those two things being combined. <laughs> yes, an ironic choice of words, perhaps. It, it, this is definitely product. Um, but yeah, Street Fighter characters, G.I. Joe characters, a six-issue miniseries. Uh, neither franchise means that much to me, so I'll be passing, but I uh, thought I'd uh, mention it to those who might be interested. Um, I see that IDW's Transformers series, plural, uh, appear to be hitting the 50-issue mark in the same month here, on pages 146 and 147, Transformers and Transformers More Than Meets the Eye. Quite a milestone there. Haven't been following those series for a long time, but I enjoyed them for a little while. Uh, page 152, I see that there's going to be another Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency miniseries coming out. Oh, yes. Another five issues. It's called A Spoon Too Short. That We just uh, <laughs> uh, treated the uh, first IDW miniseries with this character as an off-the-rack a little while ago. I think we both liked it pretty much. On page 153, we've got uh, Bo Stephen Scott Smith bringing his uh, Winona Earp character back to comics. Uh, apparently, she's going to be on television before too much longer. Huh. Who knew? Way to go, Bo. On uh, page 154, there's a trade of the recent Godzilla in Hell miniseries, which was five issues of uh, different uh, writer-artists, you know, each issue by a different single creator, uh, giving their views of what uh, the afterlife might be like for Godzilla if he fell in battle and uh, suffered different torments in the underworld. And, and one issue featured a, a longtime friend of the show and one of the best artists in the business, Dave Wachter. Oh, yes. He was psyched as hell to produce that issue. Yeah. And he draws one heck of a mean Godzilla. Indeed. So, yeah, that was that was a good miniseries. If you're just looking for different uh, 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 dark and uh, disturbing uh, artistic interpretations of mm-hmm. Godzilla. All right, I'm, I'm jumping ahead to page 167. Archie's Americana box set, 1940s to 1970s. Writer-artist cover Bob Montana. 
So this is this looks like a, a cross section uh, cog moments from Archie from the 40s to the 70s in collecting four volumes of the Archie's Americana series. So if you're an Archie fan, I, I got to give IDW props. They do a lot of wonderful reproductions or reprints of classic uh, arcs. Uh, and art that, that, that's an example of that. So kudos to them for continuing to, to honor the history of, of comics in many different ways. Page 170, 171, the March series. Book one and book two, John Lewis, who was a member of Congress today, was a, a in his, when his youth was one of the uh, – in the vanguard of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, and these books chronicle uh, his experiences. So those are highly recommended. What else for IDW jumps out at you, Murd? Um, well, let's see. Um, page 174, I see there's a second volume of the Lock and Key Master Edition reprints. Um, listeners have told us time and again this is something we ought to consider for a future, say, Book of the Month treatment, something we need to be reading and discussing. Let me jump in there for a minute because I have read the first trade. It's, it was tremendous. Um, it's written by Joe Hill, who is actually the son of Stephen King. Right. And uh, I, I, I mean I haven't read Beyond the First Trade. Bill, uh, my manager at Wild Pig, has read Beyond that, and he, he further vouches for the, just the top-flight quality of the series. The, the first trade I would happily do is a book of the month down the road. All right. So noted. Outstanding. Literally noted because I have written it down. And then opposite that is a series that I enjoy quite a bit. Uh, it's a trade of uh, IDW's Winter World material from uh, writer Chuck Dixon and a few different artists, including Butch Geis. And it's a story of a post-apocalyptic uh, Earth in which a new ice age has uh, started up. And uh, it's a tale of uh, hard-bitten survivalism in such an environment. It's uh, pretty good. It's a follow-up to an 80s Eclipse Books miniseries that Chuck Dixon had written back in the 80s. And uh, so it collects all eight issues of the IDW uh, series and the uh, Frozen Fleet Winter World miniseries that followed it. All I was going to say that this sounds very much like an 80s concept because post-apocalyptic worlds were all the rage in a lot of 80s pop culture. So. Mm -hmm. Yep, and Chuck Dixon, well, he's always been a master of uh, pacing and of action narrative, and uh, it's it, it's it's got a lot of what I like to call narrative viscosity, which means that it's, <laughs> a, it's a read that flows quickly from beginning to end and satisfies along the way. So, yeah, I recommend Winter World. On to Image? To Image. All right. Do you want to talk about our first off-the-rack pick? Oh, sure. Ah, uh, yeah. Now, some of you folks uh, may have noticed that uh, we uh, did not mention anything in the way of an off-the-rack pick during the DC section of the book. That's because we've decided to, well, once again, give DC a miss this month and uh, instead uh, uh, shed the spotlight on uh, an extra deserving independent title. So it's going to be two indies and one Marvel for this edition of Off the Racks because, uh, well, because I didn't really feel like reading Neil Adams this time out. So... Snowfall is going to be our first pick. Snowfall number one, uh, that's on page 182 in the image section. Uh, it's uh, written by Joe Harris, art by Martin Morazzo, and it's, uh, well, it's another, <laughs> uh, another dystopian future. Funny that we happen to have been talking about uh, Winterworld a minute ago because it's, uh, um, it's uh, the year 2045. The United States has been taken over by a sinister corporation and rechristened the Cooperative States of America. Uh, climate has changed so drastically that uh, there's no such thing as natural snowfall anymore, but there is one 
uh, anti-establishment uh, agitator out there who happens to have uh, the superior technology or superhuman powers or perhaps literal uh, mystic abilities. He calls himself the White Wizard. He can generate snow and other forms of inclement weather and use them as weapons against uh, the uh, corporate masters of this uh, future world. And um, so um, we've decided that we're going to give this, uh, the first issue of this series, a try as one of our off-the-rack picks for February. Looking forward to it. Page 189, I want to comment on Star by Brian Wood, art by, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, I apologize, Danigel uh, Zizilzel. I totally butchered that, I'm sorry. Um this is this. They're coming back for the second season. Uh, it's about sort of this chef in another dystopian future who he's like a world famous chef, sort of like Anthony Bourdain. If he didn't give up, uh, you know, cigarettes, drugs, and drinking, and um, he's trying to reclaim his mantle uh, on this enormously popular uh, cooking competition show. And, but it also deals again. It's Brian Woods. It deals with a lot of a lot of political themes. Uh, the first. The first uh, five issues were outstanding. And I highly recommend that. So looking forward to the, the next arc. What else an image, my friend? Mm. Well, as we turn pages here, I'd like to commend Image for having – apparently somebody gave them the note that uh, their preview solicitations of the past several months have been less than useful. Uh, they – that's true, yep. Yeah, they had things broken down by week instead of just having every single title they publish in alphabetical order. And most of the uh, things that they're trying to solicit had no descriptive text beneath them. So we were just shown an image of like issue nine of an ongoing series and nothing to entice us to buy that issue. Yes. So they've, they've changed both of those. Now everything that they're offering in a, a month, except for certain things that they're highlighting, you know, like the uh, uh, Snowfall and Starve Number 6 and, and so forth. Uh, most things that they're offering in a given month are just – uh, presented alphabetically, two per page from start to finish, regardless of the order of release. And there's also at least one or two sentences telling us uh, why we should care. So thank you <laughs> for changing your your uh, format uh, uh, for, for your preview solicitations. It's most helpful to those of us trying to review your books and uh, maybe give you some sales. Um, there was something I noticed. Um, it, I, I'm trying to find the page, but it's – oh, of course, it's alphabetical, so I can just go to page 198 right away. Elephant Men, uh, number 69. It's uh, Is it just me or have we not had a new issue of Elephant Men for quite some time? I've never read that book, so I can't comment on that, sir. Yeah, for a little while there, uh, when uh, Ladrone was the artist, uh, it was uh, one of uh, Brian Deemer's favorites, and it's about uh, – Big uh, honking bipedal animal mutants, and uh, who doesn't love that? So I, I've collected uh, that series for the first year or two, and then it started coming out um, less and less frequently. And now apparently we are finally uh, wrapping up a story arc from I don't know how many months ago. So I guess any time uh, Elephant Men is released these days, it's, it's something of an event. So good on them. And I want to mention on page 199, the goddamn number four story by Jason Aaron – Art by Arm Guerra, who is his collaborator on the classic Vertigo series, Scalped. Um, I read the first issue of this. Outstanding. Aaron continues to just be on a hot streak, just constantly hitting out of the park. Uh, this is about Earth in the, in the early time of man, pre the flood. And the first issue, visually mind-blowing. And the story was just... And I mean this in the best possible way, horrifying. Um, so I, I, if, if you can still get number one, I highly recommend giving it a try. Hmm. It's, it's what Aaron does best, just 
gritty violence, but not just for the sake of violence. Just there's there's a, there's a lot going on there, but just just plunging in, into the just he's imagining all right what this world of early man was like. Their sort of their early tribal societies and just it just the savagery of it all. It's so well done. Uh, page 217, they're printing in trade paperback Garthenis's and Carlos Escara's Bloody Mary, which I've never actually read. One of the few Anna stories I have not read. Um, it's probably worth checking out. Uh, page 219, I, another book I want to really uh, extol is The Fade Out. This is volume three, uh, the final act of uh, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips' latest uh, noir comic. These, this is one of my all-time favorite creative teams. I've loved every single thing they've done together. Uh, the Sleeper series, Criminal, Fatal, Incognito. Uh, this is about uh, a murder in the sort of the seamy underworld of 1940s Hollywood. It is absolutely riveting and pitch perfect. And if you're a fan of crime noir and sort of that Hollywood land t- type world, you have to read The Fade Out. Highest recommendation. Uh, page 222, another book I, I, that's coming out on trade that I always laud is Thief of Thieves. By the, Now, this is a Robert Kirkman property, but he's the creator. But the writer is, is – there's been a couple different writers. Andy Diggle, another great writer, is, is the, the current writer. And the art has been done all the way by the great Sean Martin, bro. He did wonderful work on uh, Batman, Detective Comics, uh, many years ago. You may recall some of his great uh, Ra's al Ghul, Talia stories. Uh it's it's a great these are just great caper stories about a master thief, and you know his the effects on his family and also his 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 capers and how he's trying to get out of that life and how he gets dragged back into it. It sounds pedestrian and, and like you've heard it before, but it doesn't matter. It's so well done, and uh, the art is beautiful. Highest recommendation there as well. Anything else for image, my friend? Uh, not not for me. Let's go to Marvel. Okay. Let's talk about our uh, second off the rack, off the rack pick. Okay. Um, okay, we're gonna have to flip through a couple of things here. Um, okay, we, we can go back to uh, what was. Uh, no, we'll, we'll go to the, start from the beginning, sir. What do you want to talk about? Go ahead. Okay. Well, um, well, uh, kind of the runner-up for our uh, Marvel yes. off the rack pick uh, this month uh, was uh, on page uh, four and five, a new Spider-Man series, just adjectiveless Spider-Man number one. It's uh, written by Brian Michael Bendis. It's uh, the artist by Sarah Pacelli, and the star is not Peter Parker, you know, uh, but uh, the the Miles Mor- Morales um, Ultimate Spider-Man two character. Um, who has, uh, in the wake of Secret Wars, been plopped down in the middle of the mainstream Marvel Universe, Earth-616, if you will. Um, And so this uh, series is kind of... I guess it's going to tell in flashback, uh, in dribs and drabs, uh, relate to how Miles Morales ended up um, on this Earth and how he uh, got himself acclimated, uh, how he became a member of the Avengers, uh, one of the various Avengers squads, uh, how he acquired uh, you know new friends, a place to live, all that fun stuff. It's just how he's adjusting to life in, well, a new version of New York on a new Earth. Should make for some interesting reading, I would think. Uh, I would really be, I, I really enjoyed the Miles Morales character. I have to admit, I fell off or fell behind on his Ultimate series. I never actually finished it, which I would like to do at some point. Um, I'm always amused by these recent solicitations because Secret Wars hasn't ended yet. <laughs> True. But you know, obviously, everything worked out in some sense because you know, the Marvel Universe has been restored um, in some form. Not that we're surprised by that, but I mean, 
really looking forward to, to us on the show talking about Secret Wars once it's actually over. Um, so stay tuned for that. All right, on page uh, eight and nine. Oh, no, one more thing. No, I'm sorry, Murd. Go ahead. My apologies. Yeah, page seven. I, I don't even know uh, what exactly to make of this. Uh, it, <laughs> a, yeah, the, the, the solicitation copy is a bit elliptical, but uh, uh, it's called Avengers Standoff. Welcome to Pleasant Hill, number one. The creative team is writer Nick Spencer and artist Mark Bagley. So those are some pretty big names. And uh, Nick Spencer, uh, uh, you know, he, he can write uh, – uh, fairly straightforward and entertaining fare like uh, well, the uh, superior foes of Spider-Man, and he can also do some pretty mind-bending stuff as well. Um, but uh, the, the cover artist is, a, is apparently a, a little girl holding a cosmic cube, and um, and the Avengers are involved because they're right there in the title. Avengers stand off, welcome to Pleasant Hill. So whatever it's about, it's going to be weird, and it's probably going to be good. Well, it's a great creative team. Now then. All right. Our uh, next off-the-rack pick for Marvel, page 8-9, Power Man and Iron Fist, number one. The original Heroes for Hire, back on the clock. All right, as some listeners know, I'm a huge fan of the Marvel Street characters from the Bronze Age. And I'm really excited about this, especially because the writer, David Walker, I think, is the same writer who wrote the recent Shaft miniseries, uh, as in John Shaft, the classic uh, black exploitation character. Uh, last year, or which was actually earlier this year, which was wonderful. So, based on what he did there, I'm really looking forward to how he addresses Power Man and Iron Fist. And uh, you know, this this is reuniting, you know, Danny Rand and Luke Cage. Because remember, we had a, a recent Power Man and Iron Fist miniseries a year or so ago, which was a, another Power Man. Um, but now these are the originals. So, this is our second off the rack pick, and I, I'm really looking forward to reading this. Expect old friends, hired goons, crime lords, weird magic, plenty of power, a flurry of fists, and as much bromance as you can handle. In! Hmm. That's Power Man and Iron Fist right there in that description. Yeah, I think I can see a little image of uh, Tombstone down in the corner of one of the variant cover images. So hopefully he'll make an appearance too. Yes, I see that. And also they have a variant cover with my main man black panther celebrating his 50th anniversary next year and yes ladies and gentlemen that black panther spotlight will be coming to commemorate that 50th anniversary stay tuned for that as well can't hardly wait <laughs> all right we got on page 10 yet another in an endless stream of deadpool uh, miniseries uh we are we are uh, doing off otr for last month's previews the deadpool uh, spider-man team up mm-hmm. which is more to do with the creative team than the yes Joe Kelly. Joe Kelly, Ed, yeah. Ed this is Deadpool and the Mercs for Money, number one, by Cullen Bunn and Salvador Espin. I'm Deadpooled out, but, uh, you know. Uh, He's a little bit gr- overexposed, just a little. Yeah, I mean, great character. I can understand why, but I, I'm looking forward to the movie. But, oh, you know. yes, you and me both. Yeah. Interesting. What else you got for Marvel, my friend? Uh, let's see. Page 12, we've got an X-Men miniseries uh, written by uh, a musician, uh, Max Bemis, frontman of the band Say Anything, and apparently an X-Men fan. Um, it's called X-Men Worst X-Man Ever, number one of five, and it's uh, the experience of uh, an awkward young man who's discovered that he has a mutant power, uh, finds himself in the middle of the X-Men, and uh, it quickly becomes apparent he doesn't really belong there. And uh, so it's... Uh, Artwork looks kind of interesting by uh, someone named Michael Walsh. You recognize Indeed. the name, Chris? I do not, actually. I, I kind of like the way he draws the beast. Uh, hairy, oh, uh, yeah, me too. That's a great looker. rendering of the beast. 
And, uh, and Danielle will be pleased to know that Jubilee is featured here. Oh, yeah, right there she is. Her favorite characters. So, yeah, maybe uh, she'll pick that up. I want to comment, Murd, on pages 14 and 15 on the breathtaking Alex Ross covers. Gorgeous. For, <laughs> for the all-new, all-different Avengers 5 and 6. Um, and and they're, they're riffs on, on classic uh, Marvel images of the past, which makes them even more compelling. Uh, number five seems to be that Miss Marvel is being ejected from the team as she walks away forlornly. And, of course, number six is a play on the legendary uh, Behold the Vision, <laughs> uh, Silver Age John Buscema cover. Right. Character's first appearance, correct? Uh, yes. So th- these look very exciting. Uh, I- I've read the first issue of that comic. We'll comment on that in the future as well. All right. It's, it's Mark Wade written, so it's, it's bound yes. to be good. Now, for me, a lot, of the, a lot of the ongoing Marvel stuff is stuff that's you know, just ongoing that we've talked about. Anything that jump out at you, Murd? I'm uh, flipping uh, fairly quickly and cursorily here, but yeah, it does seem that uh, there is not much uh, truly new that uh, needs to be mentioned at this point. As I mentioned on page 25, Mighty Thor number 4, Jason Aaron strikes again, Russell uh, Dauterman art. I read issue one of this. It was tremendous. Uh, again, this is the Jane Foster Thor. I've really, I've really enjoyed Aaron's whole, now lengthy run on the Thor character. For me, he continues to do no, do no wrong with that corner of the Marvel Universe. Um, I'm ready to go to trades unless you have other comics you want to talk about. Um, yeah, I'm not really finding any. Uh, this is kind of a light month for me all the way around. Um, oh, um, let me uh, give give a quick uh, shout out to the the new Carnage series. Fifth issue of that is on page forty four. It seems that uh, Carnage has fallen into the hands of the Darkhold cult. So there's a time honored Marvel concept there, the Darkhold. The oh yes, home of uh, evil magic, written by the elder god Thon himself, and they seem to have gotten their hands on a uh, you know serial killer Cletus Cassidy and his uh, symbiotic alien friend. Uh, this is the, it's written by Jerry Conway, and he oh. brings a great uh, Bronze Age sensibility to the storytelling. He actually seems to have some concern for continuity. In the first issue of the series, he actually takes a little time to review uh, the symbiote family tree, all the different characters who spun off from the original Venom symbiote. Um, and so I, I'm you know, indebted to him for that. And just what what page is that on, Mert? I'm sorry. Uh, that's on page 44, issue number five. But, uh, the second issue just came out this past week, and the first issue was pretty darn good. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm what a fan of Bronze Age uh, villain-centric series I am. You know, between Marvel's supervillain team up and uh, DC's Secret Society of Supervillains and the Joker. And this is basically since Jerry Conway is writing it, as far as I'm concerned, a, a Bronze Age uh, supervillain series that happens to star a 90s character. So. Well, you and me both because I love Conway, and I, I – I, don't quote me, but I think he actually created the Darkhold concept back in the 70s. Hmm. I think. I'm not positive on that, but well, – so. he, he had his fingers in a lot of pies at Marvel in those days. He sure did. So more his than possible out, that he did. His output was positively prolific. Um, but yeah, that is a series that uh, I have uh, decided to follow monthly. All right, I'm ready to move to trades unless you have other comics to talk about. I do not. Okay. I will also mention, of course, just as we get into the, into the, near, near the trades, the, all the Star Wars titles, again, just continue to be just outstanding. Aaron again on the main Star Wars title, Gillen and LaRocca La on Dar- Dar- Darth Vader. Uh, these are wonderful books. If you're a Star Wars fan, just a fan of great comics, definitely check them out. 
I'm looking at uh, page 80. Stan Lee, Marvel Treasury Edition slipcase hardcover. So for $200, (laughs) you get a collection of books that have already been reprinted many, many, many times in many other formats. Um, Although to be fair, some of this is is some of Stan's golden age and sort of – uh, yeah. Atlas era work, so you got mm-hmm. like you have Black Knight from number one, which was art by the late great Joe Manili. Um I see some Millie the Model material. Millie the Models in there, yeah, Amazing Adult genre. Fantasy, which is great Ditko stuff. So I don't mean to demean it. I mean this is a great collection. There's a lot of great stuff in here, a lot of great stuff that's important historically. But again, do you have two hundred dollars? So if you do, uh, this is and if you're a Stan Lee fan as, as I am, this is worth owning. So. It's a good thing to have him autograph if you see him at a convention. Absolutely. Um, Mert, on page 82, Thanos, the Infinity Finale. Yeah, I don't think I even realized we were in the middle of a new Infinity Trilogy, but uh, yeah. there's the final chapter. Yeah. Yeah, I still have the copy of the uh, Thanos, the Infinity Relativity OGN that you gave me, Chris, and I have not yet read it. Oh, my friend, uh, I mean, I, I still have uh, your, your one thesis I need to read, so... Take your time. I I will, Chris, because I have no choice in November <laughs> and December anyway. Yeah, there's no rush at all. It's we're we're, we're all it's all part of the kinship. Uh, okay, now I, I all right. I have to be what rhapsodic here. Page eighty five. Oh yes. At last, hallelujah! Clearly, Marvel has finally been able to sort out the licensing issues. Shang Chi, Master of Kung Fu Omnibus, Volume One. Englehart, your, your heart should be quickening already. Monk, Ween, Starlin, Galacy, Milgram, Pollard, Busema Brothers, Ross Andrew. One of the greatest Marvel titles of the 70s and 80s without question. Special Marvel Edition, 15 through 16. Master of Kung Fu, 17 to 37. Giant Size Master of Kung Fu, 1 through 4. Giant Size Spider-Man 2. Whew. Now, we did a spotlight on Shang-Chi yeah. not too long ago. And the heck of it is, within a week of the release of that spotlight episode, they announced this thing. Yeah. I so think, I think it just came out of the this, Baltimore con. Yep, this is very exciting. Uh, $125. I'm, I'm going to say it right up front. It's worth it. Uh, this is a groundbreaking series. I mean, go back to the spotlight. I'll t- I talked about it in much more detail there. I won't belabor the point now. But uh, in terms of taking a sort of kitschy concept like like the kung fu craze early 70s and they blew it up into this just evocative and powerful story about you know one warrior's journey to just sort of to find his place in in this in the western world also trying to deal with you know the painful legacy of where he came from and the artwork i mean it's it's it, i mean starlin co-created the character then you have galacy uh Later on in the next omnibus, they'll probably have Mike Zeck work, and then, and then later on at the end, the late and very great Gene Day. Pound for pound, one of the most visually compelling Marvel comics of all time in my opinion. And the story – Monk wrote almost the entire series. It's his vision. It's – if you love kung fu, if you love mysticism, espionage, James Bond fan, it's all here. Perfect. Page 87. This is <laughs> – talk about milk in the Star Wars gravy train. <laughs> Star Wars droids and Ewoks omnibus. <laughs> is this Star Comics material? It looks like it. Let's see. Yep. Ewoks 1 through 14. 
Droids 1 through 8 and Ewoks UK Annual 1989. $100. The Star Comics are hard to find than back issues. Oh, I bet. I mean, I think some, some trades have come out. I don't know if any are in print at the moment, though. So, is anything else here? I want to point out also on page – they haven't finished the story yet, but on page 2 oh, – there's no page numbers again. Uh, 90, 92, Thor's, the trade paper by Jason Aaron, Walt Simonson, penciled by Chris Sprouse. I'm sorry. Zudzika and Walt Simonson, great – Procedural detective story in the battle world during Secret Wars. Highest recommendation. Hmm. Uh, back on page 88, we've got a massive uh, hardcover omnibus. Uh, 1,240 pages of Squadron Supreme. Oh, wow. I missed that. Yep, Squadron Supreme Classic Omnibus, they're calling it. And it reprints a lot of appearances of the uh, original uh, Squadron Supreme, including their first appearances in the Silver Age in in the pages of the Avengers. uh, Roy Thomas, yep. Yep, you bet. Uh, There's an arc from the old Defenders series, the entire 12-issue Mark Grunewald-written Squadron Supreme maxi-series, a couple of one-shots thrown in there um, from the Buzik-Perez run of Post-Heroes Reborn Avengers, that's in there, and even a couple of issues of uh, the – well, the the 2000s reimaginings of the the Squadron. Um, So, yeah, a lot of different Squadron Supreme classic appearances there. Uh, all in one place, uh, but for $125. So it's, uh, if nothing else, I, I don't think I'm going to be buying this hardcover, but at least it's given me a checklist of back issues I need to hunt down. So thanks, Marvel, for put, keeping this in print and also for telling me uh, what to be looking for as, as, I, as I pinch pennies in the cheap bins. Page 105, Captain America and the Falcon by one of my favorite writers, Christopher Priest. We'll be talking about a great deal when we get to our Black Panther spotlight. Uh, this is an excellent series, one through fourteen. I'm not a Bart Sears fan. I didn't. I don't care for his work, but Joe Bennett, who I do love, did part of it. It's it just Priest addressing the Captain America Falcon dynamic. Compelling stories. Uh, good Christopher Priest humor in there. Highest recommendation for that. The next page on page 106. Again, enter a legend. Howard the Duck, Volume Two. Marvel is collecting in, in color soft covers the Steve Gerber series. I love the Bronze Age riff on Star Wars there. This collects 17 to 31, which is the, the end of that the, the original volume, and Howard the Duck magazine number one. It's 35 bucks. It's pricey, but if you're a Howard the Duck fan, well worth it. I mean, Gerber – other people have done Howard the Duck, but Gerber is the creator of Howard the Duck, and it's his vision as, as, it, as it should be. I'm done with Marvel unless you have anything else, my friend. Uh, let me just throw out a mention of Thorcore on page 107. It's a reprint of a four-issue miniseries um, from the 90s written by Tom DeFalco. And uh, I actually have all four issues of that series in my collection. It wasn't very good, but I'm, I'm just bringing it up because uh, as soon as I saw the announcement of this Thor's series that you talked up a minute ago, ago Chris, yes. my first thought was, uh, didn't they already do that in like 1993? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the Jason Aaron, uh, Walter Simonson version is a whole hell of a lot better than <laughs> Than Thorcore was, but it's just kind of cool that Marvel also remembered that they had done something like this before and are now uh, oh, trying to make a uh, buck or two on uh, having remembered that. So, indeed, I wouldn't pay thirty dollars for it, though. I'm sure you can find <laughs> uh, all of those issues for you know pennies on the dollar. Absolutely, those are, those are fifty cent bin books, without question. Oh yeah. 
All right. All right, which brings us to the end of the Marvel section of the catalog. And now, before we proceed to the back of the book, uh, let's uh, take a little breather here in our uh, previews episode. And um, just uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to bring on the line here uh, an old friend of uh, the Comic Geek Speak podcast program and a friend of his uh, to talk to us about a project that they've got going on that we think is well worth your time. And now, joining us by phone, we have a couple of uh, special uh, creator guests, um, one of whom is a very old friend of ours, uh, artist J.K. Woodward, and uh, his friend and collaborator, uh, Chris Kapiniak, uh, who are here to tell us a few things about their project, Behemoth. Guys, how are you doing? Hey, and by the way, I'm a very young friend of yours, not a very old friend. (laughs) Uh, Humor of opposites. All right. Um... (laughs) So, um, well, long-time listeners to Comic Geek Speak have heard uh, quite a few things uh, from you already, J.K. Um, so we're going to start off here with uh, the relative newcomer, you know, your, your young friend, Chris Kipinia. So, Chris, the first uh, thing... Hi, thanks for having me. Ah, well, it's, uh, and fine. thanks for calling me young, even if it is just relative. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's, it's um, our pleasure to have you here, Chris. Now, we're going to start by asking you the first question we always... It's kind of like our hazing ritual here on CGS. <laughs> First-time guests always get asked the question, how did you first get interested in comics? Uh, you know, for me, comics have been such a part of my interest in my life, I have no idea where it started. I think the first known pictures of me had me in, like, Captain America pajamas. Second birthday had Super Friends, uh, you know, on the cake. So I don't know when it started, but it's just something, a form that I've always loved. And every time I've seen words and pictures together, whether it's uh, an actual comic book or it's, uh, you know, an advertisement for something in a magazine that just has that kind of, um, that uses comics, I'm just sort of compelled to read it and see the the way the two uh, interact. So I've, I've just sort of always loved it, and it's always been a desire to work in the medium, Um Sort of as everything else, you know, as I grew up and as other ambitions came and went and, you know, some of which I still pursue and still have, comics have been uh, a constant. Um, And, you know, I started out, I think, like everybody else, loving superheroes, uh, which I still do, but my tastes have matured and changed some. And I've become much more interested in the form itself and, uh, you know, the way words and pictures interact and trying to use sometimes the contrast between the two, um, you know, and using the, the dissonance between that, between what the character is saying and what's being shown as a way of uh, expressing something else. Well, Chris, there's no question you're a writer because that was quite eloquent. And as a <laughs> teacher, you. and as, a, as, a, as a, a teacher in my day job, I must say how refreshing it is to hear someone speak so eloquently. And uh, damn good to have you on the show. I, I have a follow-up question. Do you happen to remember the first comic you actually read? By chance, I don't remember the first the first issue that I read, but I do remember buying comic books off a spinner rack from a drugstore. And bef- before I sort of realized that you could follow a story, before I realized the serial nature of it, I would pick up comics just sort of based on great covers. So there are definitely issues that I remember just by their covers. Like for example, an issue of. Uh, Green Lantern, where Jon Stewart had Hal Jordan by his uh, costume, you know, like looking like he was about to punch him, and they were on the moon, and it just looked fantastic. Or uh, a Gene Colan cover 
of oh. Batman that had Batman on the floor of a boxing ring that, uh, and I think the villain was something like Dr. Fang, I think he was, sort of a gangstery type vampiric character who, I don't think he actually was a vampire, I think he just had fangs uh, and <laughs> thought he was a vampire. But again, these sort of very melodramatic covers would just sort of grab me, and those are the things that I would grab um, and enjoy each issue as its own. And it was only, you know, I think I was 10 or 11 before I sort of realized that those numbers in the corner meant something and that there would be like an ongoing story. Um, so, yeah, so those are some things that I, that I, um, that I remember for the, uh, the first issues that I remember. Our experiences are very similar. Is it safe to say you grew up in the 1980s, sir? Yes. Born uh, yes. uh in the 70s, but actually grew up in the 80s. Yep, because I had the same experience with spinner racks, and you just grab the whatever the most compelling cover was of the character, and you kind of it's the fun of discovering over time the same experience that you realize certain artists and characters that they, there's a whole greater history to them. So magnificent. Yes, absolutely. And I, it's so interesting how these days um, other forms, you know, television for the past ten years, and I think the past couple of years have sort of caught up with that of the this sort of long, continuous river of a story where you can both enjoy the whole thing, if you're, if you're a nerd, if you're a geek, if you're following the whole thing, or it's designed to be able to, you know, drop you in at any moment and ideally have each issue work on its own as a compelling, uh, as a compelling narrative, but still work in your arc, and then in this larger super arc of sort of the history of a character... And um, it's, you know, it's sort of fascinating to see how this sort of disposable cheap art form that, that comics used to be, how it's sort of influenced um, sort of pop culture in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Now, it's my understanding, Chris, that you also have a background in theater? I, yes. In fact, I'm actually uh, doing this call from a theater. I'm performing in a show called In the Soundless All about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. And uh, so I was in the dressing room, wasn't getting a great reception there, so I went into a bathroom. Now I'm in the (laughs) uh, theater office. Now, the Indianapolis... uh, (laughs) And that seems to be working. (laughs) That's very exciting. I'm I'm a history teacher as well as a comic shop owner, and uh, so it's a play about the, the fate of the Indianapolis? Yeah, it focuses specifically on... Captain McVeigh and his um, feelings of guilt and ultimately, and it starts with his suicide at the beginning and then sort of flashes back. It's a very multimedia, um, very modern sort of piece. Uh, and it's, it's, like I said, very fo- focused on his feelings of guilt and regret and sort of survivor's guilt, I think, is, is, um, is a good term for it as opposed to being sort of a more fact-based thing. There had been a play in the late 70s called Failure to Zigzag, which was much more about this sort of events, uh, more of a courtroom drama about the court-martial. Um, but like I said, this is this is much more sort of impressionistic and, and artsy and, uh, like I said, multimedia. And it's a, it's a beautiful play and very exciting. Uh, exciting to do. I'd only heard of the story from Quint's monologue and Jaws before. <laughs> of course. So, yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that that story he's referring to is a, is a true story. 
Absolutely. I was, I, before you beat me to the punch, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm sure many listeners may be familiar with the Indian Lapis just from hearing Quint talk about it in Jaws, but you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's completely true. And uh, it's, it's just a, it's a sort of a little known, very yeah. dark moment in, in World War II. So, outstanding. Yes. <laughs> you know, Murd, I, I, Murd, I already love this guy. What a great guest. Oh, get to know him a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's give him oh, one more chance. It's been so to... blissful with James not talking for almost 10 minutes. <laughs> All right. We're going to give Chris one more chance for us to learn not to like him. Okay. Uh, no, on, still on the topic of theater and uh, to, to bring things back towards comics, uh, you did a superhero-related play at one point, didn't you? It was called Save the World. That's right. I wrote a, a play. It was um, about a team of superheroes and sort of Watchmen-esque in its tone. And uh, and in how it, it dealt with the aftermath of sort of a mission gone bad and the limits of their power and how much power, you know, where responsibility starts turning into hubris. And that was really exciting. The director that I had worked with he also really loved uh, comic books. Uh, he was specifically a Claremont X-Men man. And um, we developed it together. I'd had an idea of trying to do a superhero drama, specifically focusing on the team dynamics on stage. And we spent about a year developing it and uh, then had a production of it here in New York. And I was, I was quite proud of it. It was, um, it was exciting to see. And, uh, you know, this was in 2000. Eight. So it kind of, it was post Brian Singer's X-Men, but pre-Avengers. So um, it fell into kind of, and I guess I'm trying to think, I think it was still pre-The Watchmen movie, right? Because that, that I think was 2010. Um, and I only mention that because uh, I was quite proud of how, how like the costumes turned out and how the audience was willing to sort of accept uh, seeing superheroic costumes on stage and you know i think all whether films have always had trouble with kind of approximating things that look so good when drawn on paper in real life sometimes can look a little bit chintzy but we had a, an excellent costume designer and um we spent a lot of time sort of making sure that it looked superheroic without trying to just go with pure spandex route and i think we found a good middle ground that was able to fit the sort of dark and get the audience to to accept this kind of reality, and um, and it was great. I was very proud of it. Outstanding, sir. How long did that run for? It ran uh, it ran for a month. You know, in okay. the it was under a certain type of contract. Um, you know, we, it was for a not for profit theater. We had you know they have a season. They booked it for a month and. Every now and again, uh, I will get contacted by like a high school or something that's interested because they read like, oh, there's a superhero play. But then when they actually read it, it's a little bit on the dark side. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so we haven't had too many of the like high school summer stock productions of it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, JK, what, now besides Behemoth, which, no, I'm sorry, go ahead, sir. Oh, I was just saying, you know, a little bit too much uh, death in it for, uh, for most high schools. <laughs> well, working in a high school, uh, you know, they probably could handle it. But um, now, is that something you can read? Is that play available, like to, to read, for example? Like, is there like a version online you can I'm read, sorry. for example? I, I, I certainly would be. You know, I'm willing to anybody who asks. I'm certainly willing to send. I don't have it posted. 
posted on my site or anything like that. I sort of do like to sort of stand as a little bit of a gatekeeper. If anybody asks, I'll give, but just to sort of have have an eye on um, sort of who I have sent it out to. You know, partially because I'm sort of always also interested in knowing, you know, what people's responses are. So, of course. Yeah. And I'm, I make a point of being easy to find on the internet. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, J.K., besides talking about Behemoth, which just address just a moment, what else are you working on right now, my friend? I'm doing a serial in Heavy Metal Magazine. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. We're really excited about that. It's something that John Barrowman has, has um, picked up as an executive producer in starring roles. So I guess contracts are flying around right now. We don't know where it's going to land, but it's uh, the property's already going to a, a TV miniseries. Probably BBC, oh. I hope. <laughs> oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's as close as I got to Hollywood in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> But right now, it's a serial. It's a 12-page 12, 12 serial that's um, showing up in heavy metal, every issue of Heavy Metal Magazine for the next year. Um, and it's a deadline even I can reach. I think 12 pages every two months. It's not that. Is this your first uh, time working for Heavy Metal? Yes. Actually, well, no, I actually did a back cover back in like 2010. Just some weird random job. But this is the first time working um, in serial art for Heavy Metal Magazine, yes. Seems like a perfect yeah. gig for you. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have fond memories of heavy metal too, and, and especially now that uh, Grant Morrison's steering the ship, it's kind of an exciting time to be involved with Heavy Metal Magazine. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't realize Grant Morrison was involved in the publication of Heavy Metal. Yeah, he's uh, editor in chief, actually. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. If, if you look at the covers, it's it's kind of going from the the bikini. I think that was over the summer. Huh? Yeah, that was. It was announced at um, uh, San Diego Comic Con that he was he's taking it over. And if you look at the covers, you're getting some more interesting uh, cover art now, instead of just the uh, scantily clad chick and the <laughs> with the big gun or or sword or something. You're getting some uh, <laughs> you're getting some diversity, a little bit of diversity in the cover. Well, th- like the, for example, they recently published like Kirby's Lords of Light uh, artwork. Yeah. Yep. So. Oh, that's fa- I didn't know that's fabulous. I'm also still doing lots of Star Trek work, and in, in, besides heavy metal, I'm still doing covers and stuff that you'll see coming out in some of the some of the books that they announce in the next previews. Also fabulous, <laughs> and we're all enjoying the uh, TNG artwork that you're using as your uh, Skype avatar. <laughs> that was actually a piece I did for um, uh, what was it? Uh, I can't remember the name of the store. <laughs> it's it's another comic book store in New Jersey. So sorry, Chris. I won't even mention their name. <laughs> no, my friend, I have no problem at all. I, I have two. I, I go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, they they were they were doing a fundraiser, so I donated a couple pieces. They do uh, art auctions every year on um, what used to be Wonder Woman weekend, and they call it Superhero Weekend now. Um, and that was one of the pieces that I that I auctioned off, and it was it was for. Um, uh, something to do with foster care. I forget the name of the actual company. I don't remember the names of anything. But <laughs> because of that, I, I figured <laughs> Rascals was a good theme, and that's one of my favorite episodes of TNG, so that's why I used it. That's the episode well, where all the kids get in the transporter act, or the, the, the crew gets in the transporter accident and come back as kids. I remember that one, sure. Yeah. Well, I have two pieces of your artwork proudly hanging in the store, which I cherish. So You, you uh, own the Sandman one, right? I have a Golden Age Sandman, and he also did um, a Blade the Vampire uh, Hunter for me as well. The 70s so, version, right? The, yes. Oh, I insisted on the turtleneck, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
He's uh, ride, riding a motorcycle and bringing down a spike on a vampire. It's tremendous. So, <laughs> thank you, sir. Uh, oh, sure. Wonderful. All right, let's uh, let's talk about your new book. Yeah, where do you okay. guys where do, where do you guys want to start? Like, what, for example, what was what was the impetus for this, and you know, how did you come together on it? Yeah, it all started at a bar named Dominie's Hook in Queens. <laughs> <laughs> a mutual friend put us together. Um, said, you guys got to meet, maybe you can work on something. And then, so we, we, uh, got together over a drink and started talking about it, some ideas. And Chris, why don't you take the story from here? You're the writer. You tell the story. Yeah, absolutely. Was, I was about to say, I can, I, I'll try to pretty it up. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> make it sound more relevant. Uh, no, we have a, a mutual, a mutual friend introduce us, like James said, and, um, you know, at the time, I had already worked a little bit in comics, but was looking um, to sort of develop stuff more, looking for a collaborator. And this guy, Josh, had said, like, well, you know, I know this this one guy. And so I checked out his work, you know, um, and was immediately blown away. And I was like, wow, of all the one person that I have any kind of contact with in comics happens to have, like, beautiful art that was the sort of thing that, that I loved. I think at the time... He had done an art, you know, he had just started doing Fallen Angel. I think uh, one of the arcs had been done, and that's what I sort of looked at. And I was, again, like, just amazed that I'd, that I'd get a chance to, you know, to meet this guy. And um, like I said, we met, met in a bar, and, um, and we chatted and talked about uh, collaborating. And uh, we came up with a few ideas to, for some of the larger companies, but things that, you know, never really went anywhere. But then we talked about developing something new when creator-owned, and I had a few ideas that I was, you know, sort of, that were pretty nascent, but just sort of um, trotting them out in front of James and, you know, trying to think of which one, you know, interested him. And the idea that that ended up becoming Behemoth was the one that he thought was most interesting. And in retrospect, it makes perfect sense. You know, the book is about... um, is about a sort of a group of monsters. It's sort oh, of like actually, a dark let me back reflection up there for a second, Chris. The X Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me back you up a second. Tell them, what, tell them the the pitch you gave me. What you how you described it to me originally. Do you remember? Well, the the original around that time, I had met um, with an editor at Vertigo, and uh, was trying to interest them in doing sort of a. At the time, you know, they did a lot of the sort of postmodern reintroductions of old concepts in the way that Animal Man or Doom Patrol or uh, Shade the Changing Man. And I had read some. And at the time, I was like, you know, here's this idea of you the dropped World out there. War II. Uh, the Creature Commandos was a war book about World War II soldiers that were surgically made to look like universal monsters. So you have a Frankenstein, a, vam- a, a Dracula, a Wolfman, which of course does not does not seem worth the surgery, but you know they just made them look like that. And I, the idea that that I thought was interesting about that I was like, what if it was actual monsters being sort of shepherded and um, and sort of treated almost like attack dogs? And that was the the sort of the impetus of it, of a sort of um, darker, um, I guess, post modern reworking of the concept of the creature commandos and uh, in working on it with, with James, it developed and, and changed. It still is very much that. Um, but we decided to focus for the first arc 
work on young girl uh, and follow her transformation. So there's, you know, the story of what happens in actual action, but there's also sort of a, a, a story that is told through, that is also told through the changing style of the art and um, about her transformation. You know, here you, you have this girl who starts out and finds herself bodily turning into a monster. And at the same time, she's struggling to retain her mind and her humanity. And we're watching with each successive issue how, she changes both physically and mentally uh, and becomes more of a monster uh, by the end of it. And so that became that's that sort of theme of um, of identity and how other people perceive you and how that creates what you believe of yourself, that sort of attempt to remain human despite your mind betraying you, those became... Um, sort of strong, stronger themes. And, um, you know, the idea is still, and I think if, you know, if, um, if we can, we'd love to revisit the world and it will become about, you know, this idea of, of uh, these people who are dehumanized physically and then dehumanized by the government treated as disposable soldiers. And um, I think there are a lot of avenues that we'll, you know, to, to explore with that. But for this first arc, we wanted to focus on the transformation and, um, and sort of getting a very first person view, sort of very much seeing through her eyes. And so you see the way the narrative changes as does um, the, the layout and the art to sort of uh, show how her, her mind and her perception is changing. I want to piggyback on that for a minute because I, I, I've only had an opportunity to read the first issue, but I want to compliment you both. Uh, I thought it was outstanding, and what I found was especially compelling about it to piggyback on what you were saying is that a lot of the humans around her really are really more monstrous in their behavior than the main character is. And and the, the, the letter she's writing to her mo- – well, she has to have someone write them for her to her mother uh, I thought was so, so powerful and uh, – the story, I really recommend people check this out because there's a real pathos to it. And uh, I love the fact that you built it on the Creature Commandos, which in hindsight makes complete sense now, now looking at, the, at it from that perspective. But uh, this, 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 the first issue I read really affected me. I thought it was extremely well done. Yes, and I, I so. echo uh, Chris's uh, compliments there. Um, I've, I've read uh, the whole first uh, four-issue arc, and uh, I've seen what you were describing, uh, uh, Chris K. You know, we do have two Chris's on the line. <laughs> um, uh, as far as the, uh, the gradual mental de- deterioration of the main character, Teresa, and uh, Chris is absolutely right. This is beautifully constructed, tragic pathos. It's, it, it's really heartbreaking to, to just watch, sit there and watch uh, as her humanity leeches away from her. And uh, you know, I, I saw what you were talking about, Chris, as far as the – well, Chris K. that is – as far as the, uh, the, the alteration of the art style to uh, uh, help to convey what's going on in her mind. Uh, you know, the, the, the lettering in particular is her internal monologue slowly uh, fades away into, well, virtually nothing. And instead we're left with – in the end we're left with um, yeah. uh, well, the instructions being fed her by her uh, sympathetic human handler. Um, and we get to see it's kind of like that old Far Side cartoon. What dogs? What we say to dogs and what they hear. It, what we say to the monster soldier <laughs> right. in the field and how much they're able to understand. And it's really, as I said, heartbreaking to see just uh, what Teresa's been reduced to by the end of, of issue number four. And 
Uh, yeah, props also for bringing back the creature commandos, which is – I remember from weird war tales way back when. I have a, a trade of those early stories. Honestly, I, I had, it hadn't even occurred to me that you were riffing on the creature commandos. I was thinking more in terms of um, like uh, the Marvel concepts, like the Legion of Monsters, um, which actually brings me to something I was going to ask you, J.K., because uh, mm-hmm. you've been on record a few times now saying that uh, your fandom of comics goes back to like Bronze Age stuff, so, so 70s Marvel stuff. Sure. Uh, so uh, did uh, – and, and of course, monsters as protagonists has been a, a mainstay of Marvel storytelling almost since the beginning. And if you count those old like 50s uh, – Yes, yeah, so it's timely. Comics, they've been doing that. Right, right. So that's like prehistoric Marvel. So mm-hmm. um, is it fair to say that some of that may have influenced uh, your input into uh, this project? Oh, I think a lot of that did, actually. Um, and uh, <clears throat> a lot of my love for some of the old EC stuff as well kind of got in there. Um, this, is all, this is all the stuff that makes me want to draw monsters in the first place, and it's probably what compelled me to uh, work on this project. Because um, like, like Chris said, we went through a bunch of different ideas before we settled on this, and I think that's what it was. But yeah, that stuff definitely, definitely influences, as well as um, like a lot of the storytelling. I went back to some old... You know, like burn X Men's, um, and try to do more classic um, uh, Bronze Age stuff, storytelling wise. Now, did you guys collaborate together on the design of the monsters? Was was that all you, J.K.? No, it was both. Well, for the main characters, he had um, actual description. So Chris had uh, you know planned this out in the um, in the script. Uh, and I just worked off his designs. All the other monsters um, that you see in the background, uh, as well as the look of some of the some of the uh, main human characters. Um, well, I think the only one, Chris, you didn't describe was Doctor Seligman as the main characters, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so pretty much, Chris designed and all, the, all the main characters, know. and uh, all the background stuff was all me and, and some of the sets. I'm well, sorry, Chris. You're going to say you something. Know, I, I was simply going to say that, you know, I, um, just to de- demure a little bit, that I think that James has had more input than uh, my descriptions for most of them were pretty pretty short. And I think that there was a lot of interpretation that James went with. And um, I only mention it because, because I think he did an amazing job, but also because, you know, it's been a really interesting collaboration and something I've always been very conscious of, I guess, my own limitation of not being quite as visual as, you know, as James, as an artist, you know? And so I have words or some ideas and that, that in my mind, like I see, for example, um, Sanjay, I was like, ah, ah sort of lizard E or, and I think I said sort of Godzilla ish, um, which is, you know, as much description as, as that character had. And I might've sent a couple, you know, pictures, but I think, but James sort of interpreted that and um, I don't know consolidated or reconciled what I you know a bunch of different sort of images to make something consistent and in some ways actually self because um, you know that was the the, the main character and I, I certainly had ideas and, and things that I did see in my mind but you know nothing that would have been as um, sort of full nothing that was as fully realized as as James's interpretation of it. Um, which is again just something to learn about collaboration. That there's um, something, to, you know, something about the form where the words only go so far, the pictures go so far, and it's sort of the melding of the two where you get something different. 
now where do you think you guys want to go with this 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 property in the future do you do you foresee it becoming a series of of, of mini series or it's what, funny you should uh it's funny you should ask that because we just had a phone meeting, uh, what was it, last week, about the next story arc. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we pretty much, um, because of my other work and, and, and Chris's little acting thing he does, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we have to go with the, sort of the Hellboy model. And it's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to do uh, story arcs. Um, you know, uh, hopefully we'll be starting something um, by the summer. For another uh, six-issue miniseries, so we'll see. So it's safe to say, despite the dismissive comment about Chris's acting, that uh, your collaboration is uh, working quite effectively. Then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I say so. <laughs> sure, that's a ticket. I don't think I was that dismissive. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I have my doubts, but this little acting hobby there. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how my mother talks about Funny, my director was saying the same thing about the comic books. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you uh, want to... Just to uh, go ahead, to sorry. What, I was just going to say, just to add what, to what James was saying, uh, like I said, we had discussed some things about what the next story would be, and, and, um, and what... There are a couple things that we're... That I, you know, I'm excited to try to change... Uh, a lot of stuff. So, for example, you know, to try to look at this same world, which we've set up, but from a different perspective, you know, so yeah, this yeah. one was very, you know, first person, whereas I think where we're hoping the second arc will be a little, little bit longer, um, six issues as opposed to four, and that it'll be, um, the narrative will be a bit more spread around the cast, you know, just to, like I said, to just keep it, to take advantage of the fact that we're doing it sort of as a series of limited series in the Hellboy model, and then be like, well, so let's, if each one is going to be sort of segmented and different, to try to make them different as well. You know, try to come yeah. at it from different perspectives in order to um, give it its own, give we'll it also, its own feel. Uh, we'll also be introducing a lot of uh, new characters, which will be fun. And, and the great thing about this is we both had plot ideas, and we got together, and and it just... We found a way to do both what both both of us were thinking because the two plot ideas kind of fit together into one story, and it's going to be kind of that's probably why it's going to be six issues instead of four. But um, it's it's going to be an epic story. If it, it it feels like the kind of uh, sequel that like Empire was to Star Wars, like this the first story is going to see seem simple in in comparison, I think. And the now, character, you, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Do you, do you have like a like, like we talked earlier about TV shows, do you have like an endpoint? Like, do you have this whole mapped out, or are you just kind of letting it develop organically as you move along with it? Chris, you want to take that? For me, uh, I do. I don't have an endpoint mapped out. For okay. me, like it's, it's very much the the concept of this world where here's this idea of these people, children specifically, turning into monsters and then being treated and you know, being used as disposable soldiers. Um, and it's sort of built around that, that idea and wanting to, you know, take that in different directions and use that as, um, as a jumping off point as far as, because, right. Because it's not built around a specific character or a specific event. You know what I mean? It's got that. So therefore I'd like to, we, you know, have the way that we will sort of think like, well, what would be an interesting story to do now? 
And then, you know, I think an endpoint would present itself down the line. But um, it seemed, like I said, it's, one of the things that seemed appealing about it was it did seem fertile enough ground to create a, you know, to create a world. And who knows, maybe it'll have an end like Cerebus had an end. You know, 30, 30 years and 300-some-odd uh, issues. We'll, we'll discover it when it, yeah, shows itself. Basically, this train has no conductor. We'll see where it takes us. Yeah. Do you have a uh, is there is there a trade in the works already for this this first miniseries or is it too early for that or? Well, right now it's just digital. Um, yeah, and we yeah we probably will do a like a collected deal uh, mm-hmm. down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, being that it's it's digital only, um, you know, you can just buy the four issues. It doesn't really a trade doesn't really a collected yeah. trade doesn't really matter. Um, right. But we do have a lot of ideas about like extras. So if we do do a trade, we will be like adding a lot of stuff uh, eventually. But we're you know of, of course the end game for us we're hoping for print. So we're gonna we're gonna do what we can to to make that happen later on. And then uh, their trade is much more <laughs> makes a lot more sense than digital to me. Um, but you know, yeah, anything to add to that, Chris? No, that all of that is right and and true and. Uh, you know, we're doing it digitally now, and and that has also been really exciting for me to actually see, because I think we had originally conceived it as a print book, but this opportunity to work with Brain came up first, and uh, yeah, and that has been been really exciting to see how uh, different the form can be, and to actually read it through guided view and stuff like that, and uh, it makes certain details pop. And you know, I being, still you haven't, know, I still haven't seen it in guide. I still haven't seen it in digital form. I've drawn it like a print book. In my head, it's a print book. I have not actually seen what the issue actually looks like. Have you, Chris? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. It looks, it looks great. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, we'll second that. Despite all the digs that I get from James, I, I find myself constantly complimenting him because I think his work is just so gorgeous. And one of the things about reading it digitally and uh, specifically in Guided View is certain details will just pop as uh as it focuses on like one panel and um and you know and again the work is is fantastic and so it that just sort of adds another level of just sort of enjoying the uh enjoying the images in you know on their own sort of outside of the story i actually wince when i think about like some of those small panels blown up to screen size though <laughs> cannot look good well, well, Jay Katz, that's an interesting question. As a, as a, as an, a comic book artist, how do you feel about the trans so the translation from a print page to a digital page when it comes um, to the art? Well, like I said, I haven't seen this. Sorry, uh, I you're do read to sound like a robot. Uh, huh? What's that? Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I haven't seen this um, digital. I do read a lot uh, digital. Um, you know, not everything, of course, but I do read some. Um, and I, I like the guided view. I mean, if I'm reading it on a small device. Um, but I will always, like, pull out and see the whole page because you have that option in digital. Because I right. still want to see it as a print. I want to see – because I compose a page. I compose my panel arrangements. Everything is about um, making it look – as a uh, as a whole cohesive page, making it look a certain way, it's not meant to be viewed panel by panel. To be honest, <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll, I think I'll be much happier if this is in print eventually. 
I I mean I'm I'm old school. I still I, besides a few web comics, I still can't bring myself to read comics digitally. Mm. But um, uh, what was sent to us for this? I, I again I, I so enjoyed it thoroughly. I, I compliment you both on just an outstanding piece of work. Yep. Sorry, uh, I'm, you... I'm not hearing you guys well. No. Uh, the... well. We were just singing your praises for the work you've done, sir. So, I was making uh, fun of you. <laughs> Um, and actually, we're remiss. We should tell people where where exactly they find this book so they can check it out and so forth. Hard sometimes. Uh, it's called uh, Behemoth. Uh, it's published through Monkey Brain. Uh, it's Chris Robeson's uh, pro- publishing project he started for digital only or digital first. Um, so you can go to monkeybraincomics.com or you can go direct to comicsology.com and pick it up there. The um, The old issues, one through three... Uh, already down to 99 cents, and the new issue will be available December 9th or whenever this airs. I'm not sure, but it'll be available December 9th for a dollar 99. Um, so basically, for under five bucks, you can get the whole. You can get like 88 pages of of story. So you get 88 pages of high quality content, yeah. and a, a, one comic off the newsstands is is almost that much. So you're, you're definitely yeah. getting a hell of a bargain. <laughs> so yeah, we're Adam, not interested in making money. <laughs> Adam, do you have any other questions you want to ask? Um, not, not really. I, I'm already you know, eagerly anticipating the uh, next arc. I want to see how we're going to uh, change the, uh, the POV since you've clearly burned Teresa as a narrator. So uh, I would like to see what, uh, what Chris and J.K. do to uh, well, widen the scope of the narrative and uh, give us a few different points of view and uh, introduce new funky monsters for J.K. to draw. It, it's, it, it, it's a, I hesitate to say a fun book because it really it, – it's horror – it, it it really tugs at the heartstrings. It's uh, it, it's a far more tragic look at uh, the idea of a team of monster soldiers than comics have ever seen before. And I'm I'm glad you guys are bringing this to us. And it looks like we lost Chris completely uh, for for this call. But uh, J.K., any other closing comments you want to make about the book? Oh, there's Chris. He's back. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, anything else you want to say about uh, about the book? We're just closing up here. Chris K. I think we still. I think with JK, we've still lost him. Actually, I don't see him on my screen. Oh, yeah, it looks like we lost Murd. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the whole show is falling apart. <laughs> How can you possibly have lost me? I'm kind of at the middle of all this. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, let's see. I'm, well, I'm, I'm the hub. <laughs> Axis of the conversation. Well, J.K., thanks so much uh, for joining us, and, and thanks to Chris, even though we, we can't speak to him at the moment, because uh, it, it's it's a thrill for us. To, again, we've always loved your artwork, and just, you're just a hell of a great guy. On top of that, and uh, well, it's 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 great knowing that you, you have such a, a you know a vital new project out there for people to check out. Because again, we've we've always sing your praises to our listeners, and again, I, for me, you're one of the top artists in comics. You have one of the most singular styles in comics today. And uh, it's it's wonderful to see that in in a new project. So well, thanks so much, Chris. Appreciate it. Of that. course, my friend. Of course. Yep. Yeah, J.K. We would pr- help you promote anything you wanted, but uh, you know, because you've proven yourself a good friend to us. But it helps when the work is actually good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And uh, I say without uh, intent of deception that this was a very good comic. Oh, thanks so much. I'll pass yeah, it on to Chris if we ever get back to him. Yeah, get back to him <laughs> on the John. <laughs> I love that he was talking no, from there the bathroom this whole time. It's just so appropriate for this show <laughs> alrighty uh, anything else you want to talk about gentlemen 
JK, anything else you want to promote or anything like that? Uh, no, right now it's it's just uh, it's just Behemoth, and uh, if you're checking out Heavy Metal, check out 49th Key because it's uh, that's a great story as well. And uh, and and keep buying Star Trek comics because I'm doing all those covers. <laughs> Will do. Well, my friend, thanks so much for joining us here. Thanks so much. Take care, guys. All right, guys. Good Have good a good night. night. Bye. All right. Interlude over. Always nice talking to JK. And uh, uh, Behemoth seems like a pretty pretty uh, worthwhile series. Huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. But now it's time to get back down to the business of previews. And uh, we're going to get into the independent publishers at the back of the book, beginning with the letter A and working our way back, as usual. <laughs> All right. What's the first thing that caught your eye, Chris? Uh... Honestly, Mur, not a whole hell of a lot. Um, yeah. As you've as you've said, it's it's winter time for when these books come out. Um, I will mention on page two forty two the the aftershock imprint, which is a new publisher. They've got a lot of top flight creators um, for this line. Um, books we're, we're waiting to read, like the Dreaming Eagles by Garth Ennis. Looking forward to that should be out shortly. The new book for this month is by David Hine and Alberto Ponticelli, Second Sight. Twenty years ago, Ray Pilgrim became a celebrity and discovered his unique ability to see through the eyes of psychotic killers who were terrorizing London. The world corrupts around him when he was accused of the same crimes as the monsters he hunted. So, I like David Hines' work. That sounds interesting. We'll talk more about Aftershock as we actually read some of those titles. Um, under the... Uh, I'm sorry, Murray. Go ahead. You're about to speak. Oh, yeah. Just uh, throwing a bit of love in the direction of Action Lab Entertainment. Um... One new thing that they're doing this month is a new series uh, called The House of Montressor, which describes itself as a sequel to uh, Edgar Allan Poe's classic revenge tale, The, Cl- the Cask of Amontillado. And um, so <laughs> I don't know whether it should be considered a good or a bad thing that someone is trying to write a sequel to uh, one of Poe's classic tales of horror and suspense, but uh, Action Lab is doing it. So... All right. Uh, again, I always like to do a shout out to for Avatar, uh, the war stories on page two sixty five. Again, Garth Ennis continues to be the preeminent writer of military comics. Uh, every every literally every issue I've read of his war stories, which has been used to be DC, um, it's now Avatar is I can't recommend it enough. And even if you're not a war comic fan per se or a military history fan, these are very very compelling stories. Highest recommendation there. On page 272, where do you want to talk about Bart Simpson Comics 100? Uh, all right. Uh, yeah. Um, our uh, third and final off-the-rack pick for uh, the month of February uh, 2016 is going to be uh, Bongo's Bart Simpson Comics. Oh, no. Com- wait. I thought we were doing Shaft, my friend. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. We, we only discussed doing this. Yeah. Yes, but I, I thought you want to talk about Bart Simpson anyway. Oh, sure. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to do this as an off-the-rack <laughs> pick, but uh, I will buy it all the same. It's uh, yes. Bart Simpson Comics number 100. It appears to be a collection of different uh, – uh, different Bart stories uh, involving, well, variant futures of Bart and uh, his Simpsons relatives. Uh, 48 pages, um, and it's for four ninety nine, and it's apparently, uh, for now, the final issue of this long-running series. Um, so, yeah, I, I always, uh, uh, like every other month, if not every month, there's something from Bongo on my uh, DCBS order. Uh, so I'm definitely going to be uh, 
uh, getting this one. I was there at the beginning when Gail Simone was just cutting her teeth in comics and uh, Bongo was giving her her first uh, writing assignments. And um, I guess I'll be there at the end, too. I'm jumping ahead to page 293. This goes back to my childhood. The, the classics Illustrated. Uh, they're releasing uh, new reprint trades, nine ninety five a piece of various classics illustrated stories. One of the some of the first comics I've read, my uncle bequeathed me some of his comics from when he was a kid, and he grew up in the nineteen fifties. Uh, and when Classics Illustrated was, I mean, Classics Illustrated was was reprinted over and over for years, but here they're reoffering uh, many of the classic stories from that series. Uh, Robinson Crusoe, Three Musketeers, Macbeth, Last of the Mohicans, Treasure Island, so forth. Uh, great stuff. And uh, you know, if you, if you, if you want to introduce some of the classic novels to a, a, a kid as a way to cut their eye teeth on sort of a comic book version, these are perfect. So that leads me to our third and final off-the-rack pick of the month, which is on page 299 from Dynamite, Shaft, Imitation of Life number one of four. Uh, David Walker who we think is also doing Power Man and Iron Fist. Yeah, he's credited here as David F. Walker, so I guess there is still okay. a possibility they're two different people. But, okay, uh, that, that, that may be. Uh, someone on the forums, I'm sure, will correct us. Yeah, but we're, um, we're, we're assuming that it's the same person, though. But I'm a huge fan of the Shaft movies uh, from the early 70s, Black Exploitation era. Walker's previous Shaft comic was tremendous. It perfectly captured the spirit of uh, the, that private eye in his world in the early 70s. And he's coming out with actually a Shaft novel in February, which I'm looking forward to reading. And now he's doing a, a second miniseries, and we'll be doing that as our third off-the-rack pick, art by Dietrich Smith. All right. Yes, I've sort of regretted us not uh, – well, are not choosing the first issue of the first Dynamite-published Shaft miniseries as an off-the-rack. And, well, now is our chance to make up for lost time. And I'll be, I'll be happy to comment a bit on that when we discuss the second one. Right. So. I'm counting on it, Chris. Yes, yes. All right, my friend. What else is jumping out at you here? I, I honestly don't have that much more to say about the previews this 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 uh, month. Okay. Well, I myself. do want to uh, take a look at two things in the Boom Studios section. Yes. Uh, for one thing, on page two seventy nine, there's a, a new Steven Universe and the Crystal Gems four issue miniseries coming out. Love that animated series. Uh, it's it's fun. It's heartwarming. It's got uh, a form of superhero action, but it's really more about uh, human relationships. About uh, this uh, tubby little ever-optimistic uh, little boy and uh, his three mentor big sister figures and uh, all the life they share in their in their happy home in a beachside town, which is interrupted periodically by monsters and aliens that they need to fight. It's, there, there's more to it than that, of course, but it's, uh, it's one of my favorite shows, and I'm sorry that it's not on TV more often. You listen to Cartoon Network, change your scheduling. Get your act together. <laughs> And a few pages before that, on page 274, uh, first issue of a four-issue mini called Jonesy, which, uh, judging by the uh, uh, premise and uh, the art style, is for well, a reader who is similar to the target audience of Steven Universe. It's about a teenage girl, a little funky, a little bit of a an outsider, um, who has uh, the ability to make anyone fall in love except for herself. So it, it's kind of an uh, offbeat uh, Maybe a teen or tween focused uh, romance series. I think I'll probably try that too. All right. I'm um, looking on page 316. Uh, Devil's Due continues to bring back uh, some old uh, first comics uh, properties. Uh, the Badger is back. Uh, written, oh, wow. Yeah, by his creator, Mike Barron. Uh, it's a five issue miniseries, apparently. And artwork by Jim Fern and Paul Mounts. 
So, remember that character? Here's some uh, new stories to enjoy. Uh, let's see. I think there was something I wanted to mention under... Uh, no, no, maybe not. I thought there was something in Fantagraphics I wanted to talk about, but I, I don't... If there was, I don't remember it. Um, yeah, turning pages pretty quickly here. Um, Want to do any shout-outs for Valiant and Jamie's name? I think there was... Well, no, actually. The only thing I'm buying there is uh, the uh, Dr. Mirage miniseries. Mm. Um, I remember I, I saw somewhere that Tom Pyre was a... Uh, I wonder if that was uh, the, the Twilight Zone thing from... Uh, yeah, he, wrote our, he wrote Our Man, correct? He did. He did, and, yeah. and, and several other things I enjoyed, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was on page 303 under Dynamite. There is a Twilight Zone, number... 1959, and uh, Tom Pyre is uh, contributing one of the three stories to appear in that 40-page one-shot. So, yeah, he's is an, an unsung uh, hero of comics writing in my eyes. Um, page 358 uh, from No Brow Press, there's a one-shot called Mean Girls Club. Uh, the artwork there kind of looks hmm, sort of a... Um, I don't know, late 40s, early 50s, uh, bad girl style of artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> appears to be uh, in uh, shades of pink and black. It's about a group of uh, criminally inclined women. Definitely a retro style. Looks interesting. Um, see anything under Oni Press? Yeah, I think uh, we're probably just about finished with the comic section of the book, Chris. Um, anything you wanted to mention in uh, apparel or magazines? Uh, or? A couple, couple things jumped out at me. Um, again, as a longtime lover of Star Trek, I have to mention in the book section – actually, just blew by it. Excuse me one moment here. Um, on page – where is it? Here we go. Page 431, Leonard, my 50-year friendship with a remarkable man written by William Shatner. Um, so it's Shatner reflecting on his friendship with his co-star Leonard Nimoy, of course, played Mr. Spock, who unfortunately just died this this year. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get this myself, but I'm such a huge fan of Star Trek and just William Shatner and all his epic and magnificently bizarre behavior. And uh, you know. I always loved reading about and seeing on screen the friendship between these two men because it always seemed very genuine when they would appear you know, out of character in public and so forth. So that's probably a, a, a good read for Star Trek fans. Um, Absolutely. Nothing really in magazines is jumping out at me. I mean anything Tomorrow's published is always mandatory. I don't think it is. Tomorrow's going to have anything this month. Let's see. They do not. Wow. Boy, this is slim pickings. Um, apparel. A couple things I did want to mention, actually. On page 446, a Howard the Duck t-shirt. <laughs> in space, no one can hear you. Wog! And there's Howard in his classic hat and suit and dotted tie. Mm-hmm. It's a great image. Uh, I also found amusing on... Uh, Page 452, Nerf Herder. <laughs> and there's Han brandishing his pistol. And then above it, it just says Nerf Herder. And then there's a, there's a very sharp Spider-Gwen t-shirt above that, actually. Uh, very compelling image of that very popular character. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, in terms of, and I always like to give the tchotchke a quick look through because I just always find it so amusing and entertaining because you always wonder, you know, who has money for some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But on four sixty one, we've got some Muppets mini mates. Ah, uh, yes, mini mates. Yeah, one of the two packs is Crazy Harry and Monomena. <laughs> Action page forty six. If you're a fan of the Gentle Giant busts, they did a, a magnificent string of Star Wars busts. Uh, they're, they're coming back with a the first Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens with a First Order Stormtrooper. Gentle Giant does magnificent work uh, in terms of their Star Wars statues. So if you're a fan of that universe and you like to, to buy uh, busts and statues, Gentle Giant is the place to go there. So I recommend that. Uh, I think I'm – actually, I do have to point out on page 519 – we do like to carry buttons in our store. We, we, we always like to bring them to shows where they do especially well. They're doing a Teen Titans button set from the animated series. Those look quite sharp. That looks fun. Uh, is this the current Teen Titans Go or the earlier Teen Titans? It looks like uh, okay. It looks, looks like the original series. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fun. Um. I think, Myrna, I think I'm about done here. All right. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Chris, if you're done, I'm done. Because, yeah, I, th- you know, I think that's it. I usually don't have very much to say about the back of the book yeah. anyway. All right. Well, I guess that brings us uh, to the end of our road. Okay. I guess now's the time to review our uh, off-the-rack uh, selections. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Indeed. we're, uh, we're uh, excluding DC this time and doing uh, one Marvel, and that will be Power Man and Iron Fist number one. And two independents, one of them is... Snowfall from Image Comics, and the other will be uh, Shaft. Uh, I've forgotten the subtitle. Just a minute. Uh, Shaft. He's a bad mother. Where is it? Ah, Shaft Imitation of Life, number one of four. Those will be All the right. three for this month. So feel free to order those up and uh, follow along with us as we do uh, an episode that will review all three of them. All right. Well, this episode of Comic Geek Speak was brought to you by our friends at Discount Comic Book Service. Visit their website at dcbservice.com sometime in the coming days for an uh, updated and current list of the uh, discounts that they're offering for uh, uh, this month's orders to be shipped uh, in February or thereafter. All right. Uh, if you'd like to leave us, uh, send us an email, um, the, the address for that is uh, comicgeekspeak at gmail.com. Um, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, forgive me, I need to call up the contact information because Shane is not here, and we really <laughs> don't give the man enough credit for how together he is with this stuff at the end of the episode. Indeed. Uh, the voicemail number is 267-702-6642. Um, you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is at Comic Geek Speak. We encourage everyone to come to thecomicforums.com to uh, share your comments about uh, this and other episodes. Let us know what you're going to be ordering yourselves from uh, this month's previews. Um, and join the discussion on various uh, discussion threads on the main page, things having to do with comics in general or our podcast. Uh, we'd like to give a special thanks to everyone who has donated to support the show in the past. Uh, we uh, really appreciate it and couldn't do the show without you. And we are, as always, uniting the world's mightiest heroes, one listener at a time.
Everybody in the world. 